0: Hello.
1: I'm here on the big screen. Over here. Hey, welcome. We just want to make sure that you know that next weekend is Baptism Weekend. Uh, Why baptism? I'm going to preach the whole sermon on it to help you to understand why immersion baptism is important. And uh, if you haven't done it yet, come bring your swimsuit, bring some clothes, or don't. Just jump in. It doesn't matter. Uh, We're going to have a mass baptism weekend. Usually two, three hundred people will do it when we do this, and we're excited for it. So be ready next weekend real reason I'm here is to uh, welcome my friend Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is the New York Times best-selling author of The Case for Christ, Case for the Creator, uh, which is what he's going to talk about today, as well as numerous other books, about 20 books. Uh, But before he was a Christian and a believer and a person who can help us with the mind part of our faith, before all of that, he was uh, a Yale Law-educated legal editor and investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. So, you know, obviously he's as dumb as a box of rocks. But in spite of that, he, uh, he figured out how to to study himself into Christianity. And uh, along the way, he was picked up as a teaching pastor by Willow Creek Community Church and then moved out to L.A. and was on, on staff with Rick and Saddleback and uh, has been doing a lot of Christian things and, and left there to go do his own books and, and TV shows and other things as well. We've become friends over the years, and I couldn't think of a better person to help us to answer the question of why Lee Strobel. Would you welcome him out with me now?
0: Thanks so much. Thank you. Good to see you. I love coming to Parkview and, and seeing folks here. It's a wonderful place, and I, I've been back a couple of times, thoroughly enjoy it. We came in, my wife and I, she's here today. Uh, we came in from Denver, and we moved to Denver uh, about four years ago. And the greatest thing about living in Denver... Is we no longer have to live in Chicago and I say that lovingly because I love Chicago I grew up in Chicago I think Chicago may very well be the greatest city in the world Uh, but the advantage of moving away and living somewhere else is I no longer have to be a fan of the Chicago Cubs so I am liberated I am free at last You know, my grandfather came over to this country, to Chicago in 1915 or so, and lived his whole life waiting for a World Series championship. My dad lived his whole life. You know, I'm in my 60s. I've lived most of my life. My son's like 35. He's been waiting. They have broken so many hearts. Uh, In fact, do you know what Jesus said to the Chicago Cubs? He said, don't do anything till I get back. And that's, you know... They may not play good baseball, but they're obedient, and there's something to be said about that. I mean, you've got to give them that anyway. So it's great to be here and to, uh, to talk about, uh, you know, the why series, you know, why science? And uh, I want to go back to the point where um, I was an atheist for most of my life. Um, I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of death. And so they came up with this idea of God and an afterlife in heaven to kind of you know, make themselves feel better when they die. That's what I thought. I thought that the mere concept of an all loving, all knowing, all powerful creator of the universe was absurd. It wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. Now, my background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine you put those two things together, we're kind of a jerk, skeptic. I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune and, And we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism You know, we didn't want to accept anybody's word at face value We always tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact Before we print it in the newspaper So we actually had a sign in our newsroom that said If your mother says she loves you, check it out How do you know? Maybe she's lying Got any proof? Got anything to back it up? Any data? Any evidence about that? You know? That's the kind of skepticism we had. And you want that, don't you, from journalists? You want skeptical journalists. That's a good thing. But for me, it it, it kind of morphed into cynicism. And it spilled over into my spiritual perspective. Now, my wife was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about God or Jesus or anything. So one day we moved into a condo in Arlington Heights. And the woman downstairs was a Christian. And she... Linda became best friends with my wife Leslie and it was very natural in the course of their friendship for Linda to talk about Jesus to Leslie because Jesus was such a part of of Linda's life and Leslie wasn't hostile toward this stuff nobody had ever told her this stuff before so she asked questions she went to church with her she checked it out and and finally one day she came up to me and she said Lee I, I made a big decision I said what she said I've decided to become a follower of Jesus. And I thought, oh no. You know, for an atheist, this is like the worst news you can get, you know. I thought she was going to turn into some holy roller or something. Yeah, I so this isn't what I signed up for. This was not part of the original deal. So honestly, first word that went through my mind was divorce. I was gonna I was gonna walk out. But I stuck around. And what really uh, amazed me, shocked me, was in the following months, I began to see positive changes in her character and in her values and the way she related to me and the children. And it was winsome and it was attractive. And so finally one Sunday morning, I'm sleeping off a hangover and and she's getting ready to go to church. And and she said, Lee, why don't you come to church with me today? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go. Get around this cult, you know, that she's involved in. So... (laughs) I go to this church, meeting about a mile from my house in a movie theater, and the pastor gets up to preach. And he's a young guy. I do not even think he was shaven yet. Uh, His name was Bill Hybels. And he gave a talk called Basic Christianity. And I remember sitting there as a skeptic, and and it was like he just kept knocking down my misconceptions about the Christian faith. And I remember walking out that day saying two things. Number one, I was still an atheist. He did not convince me that day that God exists. But number two, I realized, if this stuff is true, this has huge implications for my life. You know, duh. So I decided to take my legal training and journalism training and investigate, is there any credibility to Christianity or any other world religion? And so I launched on what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation of the evidence. Now, a lot of that investigation I talked about previously when I was here, and there's probably tapes around if you want to listen to that, where I talked about the evidence of Jesus. How do we know he lived? How do we know he claimed to be the Son of God? How do we know he rose from the dead? And and that was a very important part of my journey. But the other part involved science. Because I thought that science kind of explained everything away. God was out of a job. You don't need God because science explains everything. That's what I thought. In fact, I would have totally agreed with an editorial a guest column that was written in USA Today not long ago by a guy named Dr. Jerry Coyne. Dr. Coyne is a professor at the University of Chicago in ecology and evolution. And this is what he wrote. He said, science and faith are fundamentally incompatible. And that science helps religion only by disproving its claims. I would have totally agreed with that back then. But I decided I'm going to check it out myself. And I'm going to to be like an umpire in a baseball game. I'm going to try to call a ball a ball and a strike a strike and just let the score be whatever it is in the end. In other words, I was going to pursue the evidence of science wherever it took me, even if it took me to a very uncomfortable conclusion, which it did. Because the conclusion, my conclusion, after my investigation, which now has lasted over 30 years, so I continue to study and learn from this stuff, my conclusion is the opposite of Dr. Coyne's. My conclusion is that science, when done right, points powerfully and persuasively toward the existence of a creator who just happens to look an awful lot like the God of the Bible. I mean, my conclusion is the Bible is telling us the truth in Psalm 102, verse 25, when it says, in the beginning, you, God, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, what, what is the scientific evidence that points toward the existence of a creator? Well, there have been a series of scientific discoveries just over the last 50 years or so that have I think, revolutionized the question of whether science points in the direction of a creator or away from a creator. And we're seeing more and more scientists conclude that the evidence is pointing in the direction of a creator. And there's a lot of areas of science we could talk about, but I'm just going to focus today on three of them. The first one is cosmology. Sounds like a big word. All it means is the study of the origin of the universe. How does the origin of the universe point toward the existence of a god well for centuries scientists would have said and did say that the universe is eternal it's always existed it's always been here and yet in the last 50 years we've had a series of scientific discoveries things involving technical things like the the, uh, cosmic background radiation the universe, uh, the the way the galaxies are moving apart all of these scientific discoveries in the last 50 years have now convinced virtually all scientists that the universe had a beginning at some point in the past the universe is not eternal, it's not always been here, it did have a beginning in fact Dr. Alexander Velinkin, who is the, uh, the head of the Uh, institute of cosmology at tufts university uh, said not long ago that with the proof now in place cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility that the universe is eternal he said there is no escape they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning well why is it a problem that the universe had a beginning why is that a problem It's only a problem for people like I was as atheists because if the universe did have a beginning, it has huge implications for the existence of God, and here's why. Back in the Middle Ages, there was a Muslim philosopher, and he came up with an argument for the existence of God based on the beginning of the universe. Now, back then, people thought the universe was eternal, and so nobody paid much attention to this guy. More recently, now that we know that science tells us the universe did have a beginning, his argument for the existence of God has taken on new power. And it's been popularized by Dr. William Lane Craig, a brilliant uh, uh, guy who's got two earned PhDs and and, um, has written books on this topic and debated cosmologists and physics on this topic. So here is the argument for the existence of God from cosmology. It's very simple. Number one whatever begins to exist has a cause. Can you think of anything that begins to exist that doesn't have a cause behind it? Even the most famous skeptic in history, David Hume, said, I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that something might arise without a cause. So whatever begins to exist has a cause. We now know from scientific discoveries the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. Well now, what kind of a cause can bring a universe into existence? what, What characteristics must this cause have to be able to do this? Well, first of all, this must be uncaused himself because you can't have an infinite regress of causes. So it must be an uncaused cause. It must be immaterial or spirit because it existed before the material world even existed. It must be eternal because it created time when the universe began. That's when time began. So it is existed before then. It existed eternally. It must be incredibly powerful to bring this entire universe into existence, don't you think? must be amazingly smart because of the way this universe is so perfectly balanced and fine-tuned. He must have a personal will because he had to make the decision to create. And the scientific principle of Occam's razor tells us there would probably just be one creator. So now you put all this together. What do we have? We have an uncaused, immaterial or spirit, eternal, smart, powerful, personal, one-of-a-kind creator. Friends, that is a pretty good starting point as a description of the God of the Bible. That's why cosmology is seen as one of the most powerful arguments that a creator exists, that science doesn't point away from God, it points toward the existence of God. In fact, one of the individual um, scientists won the Nobel Prize because he helped discover some of the evidence for the origin of the universe. Uh, Dr. Arno Penzias. This is what he said. The best data we have concerning the origin of the universe are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Five books of Moses, of course, talking about the first five books of the Bible. So here's, here's a Nobel-winning scientist who made the discoveries that helped prove the universe had a beginning, saying, you know what, if I just had the Bible, I would have predicted exactly what science tells me about the origin of the universe. So cosmology goes a long way toward establishing that there is a creator. Now, some people raise an objection. Some people say, oh, yeah, well then, who created God? You know, like, mm-hmm. so God created the universe. Well, then who created Him? Well, you got to step back a minute. The argument is not whatever exists has a cause. The argument is whatever begins to exist has a cause. God, by definition, is eternal. God existed before time even began. God has existed when there was just timelessness. And so, you know, He doesn't need a cause. He doesn't need a cause. Um, And by the way, atheists shouldn't be concerned about something being eternal because they used to believe the universe was eternal until science has disproved that. So cosmology is a great first step to show that science does support belief in God. But then we can go to a second area, and this is a cool area, I think. It's the area of physics. Physics. One of the most striking discoveries over the last 50 years or so in physics has been that The numbers that govern the operation of the universe, the laws and the constants of nature, conspire in an unexpected way so that life can exist in the universe. In other words, the universe is finely tuned on a razor's edge for life to exist. So much so that it defies the explanation that it could just be by chance. And it points more powerfully toward the existence of a creator. It's like this. If you go outside, you know how at night in Chicago, sometimes in the summers it's clear and and you see all the stars in the sky. What if you went outside, you looked in the sky, but you didn't see stars? Instead, you saw 50 giant dials in the sky. Huge dials. And each dial has trillions of possible settings And you look at these 50 dials. They represent the numbers that govern the operation of the universe. And you look at these 50 dials. It could be set at trillions of different settings, all independently. And yet, every single dial is absolutely, perfectly calibrated so that life can exist. That's the situation The physics tells us, you know, an illustration of what what that looks like. that's, That's what the universe is like. That the constants and laws of physics are, are calibrated on a razor's edge. How, how finely tuned is the universe? I'll give you a couple examples. Gravity. You all know the force of gravity, right? Gravity is so perfectly finely tuned, the value of gravity, so that life can exist, that it defies any explanation that it could just be by chance. Here's how we know. The speed of light, you know how long it takes light to travel? 186,000 miles in one second. Very fast. How wide is our visible universe? It would take light going 186,000 miles a second 15 billion years to go from one side of the universe to the other. It's a big universe. So imagine we got 15 billion light year width in our universe. Let's pretend we had a ruler or a dial that stretched for 15 billion light years all the way across the universe. That represents plausibly the range at which the value of gravity could have been set. It could have been set anywhere along that ruler, along that dial, 15 billion light years, but yet it's set at the exact right place so that life can exist. Now what if we changed it? What if we moved it this much? one inch compared to 15 billion light years, we moved it one inch, intelligent life is now impossible anywhere in the universe. That is how perfectly calibrated the force of gravity is. And that's just one of about 50 different variables like that. I'll give you a couple other examples. Um, When the universe burst into existence if the rate of expansion just one second after creation had been smaller by one part in a hundred thousand million million the entire universe would have just collapsed in a fireball the formation of stars is another example the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for the formation of stars is a one followed by a thousand, billion, billion zeros. Or the strong nuclear force. Strong nuclear force is what binds atoms together. If you were to change the strong nuclear force, if we were to decrease the power of the strong nuclear force by just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 all we would have in the universe would be hydrogen. No life would be possible. Friends, this is just mind-boggling. The perfection, the way the calibration is so perfect so that life can flourish in this world. It is so perfect. It defies the explanation that's merely by chance. In fact, you can go to an expert like Vera Kistiakowsky. She is the professor uh, emeritus of physics at MIT. She is the president, or was the president, of the Association of Women in Science. And this is what she said. The exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. In other words, I look at this stuff, and my only explanation is there must be a creator. Now how do you get around this? If you're a skeptic like I was, how do you try to get around it? Um, even, even Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, said, yeah, the fine-tuning thing, that's a tough one to get around. And it is, but, but skeptics have found a way to get around it. You know what they say? Well, what if we're not the only universe? What if there is actually an infinite number of invisible universes that we don't know about and can't see? And what if the dials in each one of those universes are just spun at random? And if you have enough universes, an infinite number of universes, sooner or later, spinning the dials at random, in one universe, they're going to all come up and hit the jackpot. And we won the lottery. That's why our universe can support life. That's what they say. It's sort of like if you give monkeys uh, uh, typewriters and enough paper, and they type for an infinite amount of time, they'll write Shakespeare. Right? You've heard that. Well. Same, same kind of a deal, you know. If you give enough universes to spin the dials enough, you're going to come up with one, and that's us. The problem with that is there is absolutely no exper- experimental data or evidence to support the idea that there's an infinite number of invisible universes. And by the way, if one universe, the existence of one universe requires an explanation, then an infinite number of universes requires an even bigger explanation and it points even more powerfully toward God. Friends, this kind of evidence of the fine-tuning of the universe is so powerful that there is a Harvard-educated Ph.D. professor at Georgetown University um, who was an agnostic, did not believe in God, and yet this fine-tuning evidence was a key factor in him becoming a believer in God. He wrote a book about it called God, the Evidence. And I want to read you what he wrote. He said, Today, the concrete data point strongly in the direction of the God hypothesis. Those who wish to oppose it have no testable theory to marshal, only speculations about unseen universes spun from fertile imaginations. Ironically, he said, the picture of the universe given to us by the most advanced science is closer in spirit to the vision presented in the book of Genesis than anything offered by science since Copernicus. Just like cosmology, once again, science is not pointing us away from God. It is pointing us toward a creator who just happens to look a lot like the God of the Bible. The third and last area I want to mention, this this one absolutely is going to blow your mind, um, is DNA. DNA, or biological information. You might remember um, a few years ago, they announced that scientists, by the way, under the directorship of an evangelical Christian named Francis Collins, um, but scientists had completed the mapping of the human genome. The human genome are the chemical instructions inside every cell that contain the blueprint for life. And what was interesting is when they announced that the human genome had been mapped or decoded, these were the words of President Clinton. He said, Today, we are learning the language in which God created life. Friends, that he is exactly, exactly correct in that statement. Because what is DNA? DNA is quite literally language. You see, your body has got a hundred trillion cells in it. That's a that's hundred thousand million cells in your body. And if you were to pick a cell at random and open it up, can't even see it, but if you could do that and open it up, and you were to uncoil You know the famous double helix of DNA? If you were to uncoil the DNA inside just one of those cells in your body, it would be six feet tall. And embedded in that DNA would be a four-letter chemical alphabet spelling out the precise assembly instructions of all the different kinds of proteins out of which our bodies are made. That's phenomenal. Now, how does this point toward a creator? Well, let me ask you a question. I don't have a lot of great confidence that we're going to get a big response here, but um, how many of you saw the movie Contact with Jodie Foster? Anybody see that? Wow, quite a few. Okay, you saw. It. Do you think it's worth renting? I do too. I, it's, I thought it was a very. I thought it was a good movie. It's worth a couple bucks on Netflix or whatever. Um, Uh, It's a movie based on a novel written by Carl Sagan, who is an atheist astronomer. You might remember him from PBS. Remember, billions and billions, talked about this stuff. Anyway, um, he wrote this fictional piece based on the true fact that scientists are searching the skies looking for intelligent life elsewhere. They should probably point the telescopes toward Washington, but they're not doing that. They should. (laughs) Look for intelligent life out there somewhere. So they've got these radio telescopes looking. And what are those te- radio telescopes doing? They're listening. They're listening for what? For a message from space to, to see if there any intelligence out there. But they don't, they don't get a message. All they've gotten, and this is true, it's been going on for many, many years, they just get the random background noise of the universe, just static from the stars and stuff like that. But in this fictional movie, one day they start hearing numbers. So all of a sudden, from space, we're hearing numbers being transmitted. Now, what's their conclusion? Their conclusion immediately is, this can't be a coincidence. It's, uh, you know, it's highly unlikely that the random static background noise of the universe somehow organized itself into numbers, a message with content, and is sending it to Earth. It's a more likely explanation there is an intelligence out there sending us these numbers because it's message with a content. Carl Sagan said this, the receipt of a single message from space would be enough to know that there's an intelligence out there. But friends, what is DNA? It is a message with content, it is information, it is language inside each and every cell of every living thing. I mean, think about this. Just as English uses a 26-letter chemical alphabet to to spell out words, right? A, B, C, D, E, 26-letter alphabet. In DNA, it uses a four-letter chemical alphabet to spell out all the information on how to create all of the proteins out of which we're made. In fact, get this. This ought to blow your mind. you got 100 trillion cells in your body. can't even see them. They're so small. In every one of those cells is more information than all of the words in the Sunday New York Times over 200 years. Inside every cell in your body. If you were to try to read the genetic code, the the alphabet, in your body, in each cell in your body, and you read it at the rate of three characters a second, and you did it 24-7, night and day, it would take you 31 years to read the information in every cell in your body. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? If a single message from space is enough to establish, there must be an intelligence behind it. Then what about this vast storehouse of information in every cell, in every living thing? You see, nature by itself can produce patterns. I mean, we see that. If you're, if you're walking down the beach in Lake Michigan and you see some wet sand and you see some ripples in the sand, you would quite logically say, well the waves probably created those ripples in the sand because nature by itself can produce patterns like that. But if you're walking down the beach and you look in the sand and you see John loves Mary with a heart around it and an arrow through it, you wouldn't say, oh, the waves made that. (laughs) Why? Because that's information. It's language. It is a message with content. And friends, every time, every time, we see information, whether it's a computer code, whether it's a book or a magazine or whatever, every time we see information, there is always an intelligence behind it. King David said this a long, long time ago in Psalm 139. He said, For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And you know what? We can know from modern biochemistry, from genetics, we know full well how wonderful and marvelous and mind-boggling God's creation is. In fact, one of my friends is one of the greatest scientists in America. He um, Uh, He's what's called a nanoscientist. So he he builds molecular machines for a living. Uh, He's a Ph.D. He's a professor at Rice University. His name is James Tour. This is what he told me. I love this. He said, Lee, I stand in awe of God because of what he has done through his creation. Only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say that science takes away from faith. He said, if you really study science it will bring you closer to God. Why science? Because science points us toward our Creator. And with these series of discoveries over the last 50 years, more and more scientists are coming to the conclusion that there must be a Creator behind it. One of my favorite examples of this, and this relates to this DNA stuff I just told you about, was Dr. Dean Kenyon, Ph.D., professor of cellular and um, um, molecular biochemistry at uh, San Francisco State College. And he was trying to figure out how can can this DNA thing, how can the building blocks of life, amino acids, um, which have to be strung together in a certain sequence to create proteins that have to then be folded and put together in a certain way to create life, how could all this happen without a creator? And he came up with a theory, and he published a book about it back in the 70s. It was called Biochemical Predestination, was the name of the book. And the idea was, he said, you know what, I think there's just a a natural attraction, an inherent attraction that causes these amino acids to come together by themselves in certain ways to create proteins that then come together in certain ways by themselves to create life. That's, That's what he was arguing. And he wrote a book about it, co-authored it. But then, the more we began to understand how DNA works, the less he could stick to his theory. Until finally, one day, at a scientific symposium in Dallas, Texas, Dr. Dean Kenyon, in a sense, what he did, he stood up and said, I repudiate the conclusions of my own book. I was wrong. And he has completely changed his opinion 180 degrees. And I'm going to show you why. Because I'm going to show you just a little video clip. This clip is a computer animation of how the information in DNA is used to organize amino acids, the building blocks of life, into proteins out of which life is built. Now, this little um, a video that we're going to see is from a film that was called The Mystery of Life's Origin. No, it's called Unlocking the Mystery of Life. And it's been shown on PBS. There's No scientist would dispute what I'm about to show you. This is a standard understanding of how this works. But as you watch it, I want you to ask yourself this question. Does this look like a process that is the product of, you know, random processes over time, the natural selection acting on random variation? Is this something that could have come into existence by itself? Or does this process look like something that had an intelligence behind it? And then after you see this animation, Dr. Kenyon is going to come on the screen and tell you what he now believes based on the most current scientific understanding. So again, what you're going to see is how... Cells will take the DNA, the information on, is going to take amino acids and put them in the right sequence, the right order, in order to create proteins, which is then folded and put in the right way so that life can exist. So this is going to blow your minds. You ready? Okay, here it comes. Isn't this amazing? It's absolutely my God. And I think Dr. Kenyon is right. The more we peer through microscopes at the workings at the cellular level. The more we look through telescopes and we look at cosmology and physics, the more the evidence of science points powerfully and persuasively toward the existence of a creator who just happens to look a lot like the God of the Bible. And so the last question I want to raise is, well then, why did He do it? Why did God go through the trouble? Why did He explode this universe into existence? Why did He fine-tune it so we could be sitting right here today, flourishing on this planet. Why did He do it? Why, why does He, in a sense, sign His signature to every cell in our body? Why does He do it? He does it because God is love. And God has existed since eternity past as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect love. And when God decided, I want to create humankind he wants us to experience the greatest value in the universe, which is the value of love. To love each other, to love Him, and to be loved by Him. And yet, in order for us to love, He had to give us free will to either love or not to love. And we have turned our backs on God. From the beginning, we've sinned, we've fallen short. God is perfect, God is pure, God is holy. We're not. And it's created a distance between us and God. But God said, I don't want this. I made you to be loved by me and you to love me, to be in perfect harmony. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty that we deserved for the sin that we've committed so that we could be forgiven and so we could be united with God in this world and in the world to come. Do you know the Creator? Have you met Him? Do you want to? This God, so powerful, He created a universe so loving that He crafted an environment for you to flourish in. This God is saying, I love you. I want you and I to have a relationship forever. Do you want to know? Because you can. You can. Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. I just want to end with this if you want to meet this Creator and know Him personally forever, then just in your heart just say, God, I am blown away by Your power and majesty, but also by Your love. And I confess to You my sin, the wrongs that I've done that have separated me from You, I confess that. And I want to turn from that And I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that your son purchased for me when he died for me on the cross. Thank you for loving me so much that you sent your son on a mission to die so that we could be united in this world and in heaven forever. God, help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live, because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, for those that took that step today, we celebrate that. We know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven anytime anybody repents and receives forgiveness through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we celebrate that. We thank you for this church that spreads your message of love and hope and majesty and grace far and wide. In Jesus' name, amen.